Good morning. This morning, I want us to think about all of us. I want us to think about people that we all know who we would say are good people. And right off the bat, we want to qualify that term, right? Because when we think about it, none of us are good. None of us. The Bible says in Luke 17, verse 10, So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded of you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Romans 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Turn with me and read Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So when we read about that in the book of Romans, he's quoting from the Psalms there. And the psalmist is telling us that, look, at the end of the day, humanity, whether we've sinned once or whether we've sinned a trillion times, we're not good at heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I've sinned way more than once in my life. But even if you've only sinned once, just once, you're not good. Thus, we need somebody else. We need someone to take care of that for us. And that one is Jesus Christ. We needed him to come and to live for us and to die for us. And he rose again on the third day and he ascended to the throne of heaven. He ushered in his kingdom, his church. We need that we needed that to take place so that we could find salvation. Whether we've sinned once, whether we've sinned 10 trillion times, doesn't matter. The amount doesn't matter. We need Him so that we can be saved. I want to ask you this question for our sermon this morning. In thinking about what we would term accommodatively good people, people that we know, well, he's a good guy, we might say. She's a good lady, we might say, but I want you to think about this. Two statements and then a question. I'm moral. I'm sincere. Am I saved? I want you to think about that with me this morning as we go through this. Certainly, morality is needed. It is an important piece of the puzzle, if you will. We need to be moral. Certainly, sincerity is needed. We must be sincere. Sincerity and godly sorrow, we read about in 2 Corinthians, what does it lead to? It leads to repentance. And repentance is needed for us to be saved. So certainly, sincerity is important. But is morality and sincerity alone? Are those two things enough? And the answer to that question is no. We must have Jesus Christ. We must have the blood of Christ 
to make up for where we lack, so to speak. We need him. We must have him if we are going to be saved. And we've got to respond to his gospel uh, in how he said to respond to his gospel if we are going to be saved. Unfortunately, I think that the mindset of many, many folks that we come into contact with is, well, I'm moral. Well, I'm a good person, so I'm good to go. I think many folks think, well, I'm sincere. I'm doing my best. I'm trying to do what I think is right, and so I'm good to go. But morality and sincerity alone are not enough. Again, the Bible says, there is none who does good, no, not one. I want us to answer this question. The statements in the question, well, I'm moral, I'm sincere, so am I saved? I want us to answer this, first of all, with some good old-fashioned God-given common sense. God gave us common sense for a reason. He gave us a mind, He gave us intellect, He gave us the ability to reason And to reason through what? Through the Scriptures. And common sense tells us that this statement is false. And common sense-wise, I want you to think about this. What's your standard for morality? Somebody says, well, I'm moral, so God's going to save me. What's your standard for morality? You see, we live in a postmodernistic world. Many people's standard for what they call moral is feelings. Well, I feel that this is right. I feel that this is wrong. This hurt my feelings, so it must be wrong. This makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside, so it must be right. That's not the standard for morality. Feelings are not the standard for morality. I saw online the other day an atheist was commenting on a Christian evidences site on social media, and it was talking about arguments for the existence of God, moral arguments for the existence of God. There is something called morality, and because there's something called morality, there must be someone of utmost and perfect morality who gave the concept of morality. There must be a lawgiver, and of course we know that lawgiver is God. But this, this atheist was on that post and in the comments underneath, he was talking about how, well, he doesn't believe that that proves that there is a God. And his basic idea was, well, feelings, or his terms, happiness, is what determines morality. And so several Christians were in this comment section talking about how that is not so. Let me prove it to you. Somebody says, well, the Holocaust is going to make Germany happy. Does that make it right? Well, well, no, it doesn't because not in the entirety of Germany. Well, what if over 50%, the majority? What if the majority of Germany in 1930s and 40s says, hey, the Holocaust... We're in favor of it. It's going to make us happy. We think we'll be a better country because of it. Does that make it right? Well, of course not. It's wrong. And what they did was terrible. The atheist says, well, no, it has to be the happiness for the population, not just a select 
few. Paraphrasing his comments there. And we said, well, what if over half the population, again, the majority, thinks that it will make them happy to exterminate the Jews? He responds, well, it has to be the entire population. What if the entire population of Germany is in favor of the Holocaust? It it will make them happy. You know what? You're neglecting a subset of that population, the Jewish population. It's not going to make them happy. Well, it has to be the entire population. Okay, well, what if the entire population of Germany is in favor of it? It will make them happy, but the entire population of the rest of the world says, no, that's wrong. You see where we're going with this? Who determines what's right and what's wrong if happiness is the determining factor? Last time I checked, we can't get the entire population of the world to agree on just about anything. We can't sometimes agree at my house what to have for breakfast, much less morality. You think you're going to get the entire population of the world to agree on morality? Of course not. Where's the standard then? It's not human happiness. The standard for morality is God. He has given us morality. He has told us what is right and wrong in plain black and white writing in our Bibles. But here's the thing. If everybody in this world followed that, guess what it would result in? It would result in that happiness because we'd all be doing what we're supposed to be doing. We'd be following this instead of our own way. Happiness is not the standard for morality. Next, someone says, well, I'm sincere. The standard for my morality is my sincerity. That's not the standard. Again, somebody can be sincere, but they can be sincerely wrong. A car breaks down. Someone says, well, I think it's just the battery. I know in my heart it's got to be the battery. I'm sincere. I believe it's the battery. They go down to AutoZone. They pick up a battery. They bring it home. They put it in their vehicle, and it doesn't start. They might have been sincere, but they were clearly wrong, weren't they? It wasn't the battery. Maybe it was the starter. Maybe it was spark plugs. I don't know. I'm not very mechanically inclined. But something else was causing that car not to run. They might have been sincere. Well, I really think that this is the problem. I think it's this battery, but it wasn't the battery. That's a simplistic and morally neutral subject. Car starting or not, no big deal. But what if we start saying, my morality depends on my sincerity? Somebody can be sincere deep down in their heart, but they can still be sincerely wrong. I want us to look at what the Bible says about these questions, about these statements. Well, I'm moral. Well, I'm sincere, so am I saved? What does the Bible say about this? First of all, is just being a good person, quote unquote, is that enough? Is just being moral good enough? And as we stated at the beginning, we all know folks that we would term accommodatively good people, good people that we know and love. 
And we use that term accommodatively. And even the Bible uses the term good occasionally to describe people in this general sense, in a moral sense, in a sense of walking righteously, in this accommodative sense. The Bible says in Psalm 37, verse 23, Psalm 20, uh, 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. But is the emphasis on man there, or is the emphasis on the way of the Lord? The emphasis is on the way of the Lord. Psalms uses the term good there accommodatively to describe someone who's walking in righteousness, but what's the emphasis on? It's not on that man and, oh, he did it all on his own. No, it's on walking in the way of the Lord. That's how we can be good in this accommodative sense that the Bible is using there. But is the Bible contradicting itself? Is the Bible saying, well, there's no one that's good, no, not one? And then here in the Psalms, it's talking about a good man. Again, it's using this term accommodatively, just like we use it accommodatively and say, well, so-and-so is a, a good fella. We use those terms. But at the end of the day, none of us are truly good. Again, we need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ to make up for where we fall short. Even Jesus himself said in Luke 6, verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. But we also have in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We need to reconcile these ideas when we read about the idea of being good. Every single one of us has been guilty of sin, Romans 3, verse 23. But through faith, just like Abraham, we can be counted as righteous, or we can be counted as good, if you will, we can be counted as righteous in the sense that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it righteousness to him, Genesis 15, verse 6. That said, I want to take you to a passage now in the book of Acts. Let's turn to the book of Acts, and we want to look at a good man, quote-unquote. In the book of Acts, a good man using the term good accommodatively, just like sometimes the Bible uses it. A good man that was no longer acceptable in the eyes of God because, because he had been living under a different system, the patriarchal system, and it changed. After Christ, he was no longer under the patriarch system, but he was under the law of Christ. And so there was something that he needed to do to accept the covering of Christ's blood. You know who I'm thinking about? Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. Let's look at Acts chapter 10. Let's look at the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert that we read about here in Acts chapter 10. I want you to notice verses 1 and 2. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion. So he was a soldier of what was called the Italian regiment. 
a devout man. This man was what we would term accommodatively a good man. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. If you know somebody like that, are you pleased to know that kind of person? I am. And I'd I'd use the term accommodatively, oh, he's a good guy. But his goodness, quote unquote, using it accommodatively, we keep saying that and stressing that, it's not enough. Cornelius needed the blood of Christ. Cornelius had to come into contact with the blood of Christ if he were going to be saved. And we're going to read that in the latter part of this chapter. Look with me to Acts 10 verses 34 and following. Acts 10, verses 34 and following. Peter, of course, is told to go and speak to Cornelius. And so Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He's not a respecter of persons. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace, underline it, star it. What does that say? Peace through whom? Through Jesus Christ. That is the only way we can be reconciled to God. That's the only way we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Whether we've sinned once, whether we've sinned 10 trillion times, doesn't matter. Every one of us is guilty of sin. Sin separates us from God. We need the blood of Jesus Christ. We've got to have it or our goodness so-called is going to do us absolutely nothing. We must have the blood of Jesus Christ. Peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Again, can't stress this enough. I mention it all the time. Those apostles, they saw him. They knew that this gospel message was true. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, and they're writing about it. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judged. Notice all these capital letters of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. If you believe him, will you in your absolute best ability, obey what he said to do to be saved? You will, won't you? What did he say you need to do in order to be saved? Mark 16, 16, Jesus himself, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Keep reading and we're going to see that happen right here with Cornelius. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, the Jews, who believed were astonished 
As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Peter commanded him, Cornelius and his household, to be baptized. Why did he command that? Because that's exactly what Jesus commanded him, to preach in his great commission, which we talked about last week. Is morality, is righteousness, is being a good person, quote-unquote, is that enough to save? The answer is no. We're saved by the blood of Christ. We come into contact with the blood of Christ when we obey his gospel, when we're baptized into Christ, and then there's standards that God expects us to keep as we live for him, as we walk in his light. And we don't need to minimize that because some take things to the extreme and they say, well, I've got the grace of Christ so I can live however I want. And that is far from the truth. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and following. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Peace preached through Jesus Christ. One more passage dealing with this idea of morality. Without the blood of Christ, morality does us no good. I want you to notice Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. For the law, that Old Testament law, that law of Moses, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. If they never, ever, ever missed a sacrifice under that Levitical system, they got them all. Without the blood of Christ, what would that have done for them? Absolutely nothing. They had to have the blood of Christ. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? If those Old Testament Levitical sacrifices were enough, well, then at some point they would come to a point where, okay, we've reached the threshold. We're good now. Stop making the sacrifices? It wasn't enough, and it never would have been enough. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, Jesus, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. He's quoting from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Don't miss that. Jesus had to come. And he came in the flesh, and he had to do the Father's will. And he had to live for us. He had to teach us. He had to fulfill his prophecies that were written about him. He had to die for us. And he had to rise again to life. He had to conquer death so that through his blood we could be saved. 
verse number eight, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, the law of Moses. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, the first law, that he may establish the second. You know what Hebrews calls that second law? A better covenant, established upon better promises. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're sanctified because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on his cross. Is morality alone enough to save? No, it's not. What about sincerity? What about sincerity? And to answer this question, we need only to go to the life of Paul. Think about Paul this morning. What is unique about the life of the Apostle Paul? We all know the story. He started out as Saul, and what was Saul doing? Acts chapter 7, the first Christian uh, martyr, Stephen, stoned to death for preaching Christ. And who was there consenting to his death? Saul was. And Saul slept good that night. Did you know that? Saul slept good that night because he understood at that time, he thought at that time that he was doing the right thing. You see, he thought that Stephen was guilty of blasphemy. He thought that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he thought he was guilty of blasphemy. What do you do to a blasphemer? What does the law of Moses say you do to somebody guilty of blasphemy? You put them to death. That's what those Jews did. They thought they were doing the right thing. They were sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. They misunderstood. This was the Son of God. They put him to death. They slew him. They hung him on a tree. Acts chapter 2 the 3,000 souls that were added to the church that day, they responded in repentance and obedience to the gospel. They were baptized into, the Christ, into, Christ, into uh, Christ and into his church, and the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved, about 3,000 souls. Acts 2 verse 5 says that they were devout men. They were devout Jews that had gathered from all around. They were guilty of putting Christ on the cross because they misunderstood the nature of Christ. They thought he was a blasphemer. They thought they were doing right by putting him to death. They were sorely mistaken. They were completely wrong. And so sincerity was not enough on their part. Sincerity was not enough on Paul's part. Then known as Saul, in Philippians 3 verse 5, Saul had been circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. He thought he was doing exactly right by persecuting Christians. But he was misunderstood. Sincerity is a godly virtue. Sincerity is absolutely necessary. A sincere heart will respond to the preaching of the gospel in obedience to the gospel. If somebody's sincere and they hear the truth, they're either going to obey the gospel or they're going to stop being sincere. 
once they've, once they've heard the truth. But sincerity alone will not save. Acts 23, verse 1. Acts 23, verse 1. You know what Paul said? He makes an amazing statement regarding his prior life. He says, Acts 23, verse 1, that he had lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You know what that tells me about Paul? He was as sincere as they come. He was serious. He was legitimate in his efforts of doing what he thought was right. But what he thought was right was actually the exact opposite of what was right when he was persecuting Christians. Sincerity alone will not save. We've got to combine godly sincerity with the knowledge of the truth. And we've got to combine sincerity and knowledge of the truth with faith that comes from that knowledge of the truth from God's Word. And we've got to combine it with following through in obeying from the heart that form of doctrine that's delivered to us. Romans chapter 6. And we've got to combine it with living faithfully unto God all our days. Saul had to meet Christ. Saul had to have what happened to him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Saul had to see Christ and he had to be blinded by that light and he had to be told, hey, go into the city and there it will be told you what you must do. What you must do so that you can have the blood of Christ covering you from all these sins. You have killed Christians. If you kill Christians, it's as if you're doing that to Jesus himself. He does not appreciate that one bit. But you can be saved from that sin. You can repent of that and you can obey the gospel. Go into the city. It will be told you what you must do. He goes into the city. He meets Ananias and Ananias tells him. Ananias baptizes him into Christ. Acts 9 verse 18. Acts 22 verse 16. Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Friends, if someone goes through their whole life and using accommodative language, they're moral, they're good, quote unquote. If they go their whole life being sincere, but they don't do what Paul did, recorded in those passages, they'll be lost. And there's a sense of urgency in that great commission that we talked about last week. There's a sense of urgency when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. There's a sense of urgency. Why? Because somebody can be good, quote unquote. Somebody can be sincere. But if they've reached an accountable age and they're not baptized into Christ, 
their morality and their sincerity will do absolutely nothing for them because they haven't come into the contact with the saving blood of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so urgent what we preach today. And that's why it's so urgent that we emphasize, hey, we all need to be looking for those people we know that we love and, oh, he's such a good guy, but he hasn't obeyed the gospel. That's why we need to believe it and obey it. I'm speaking to mostly folks here this morning who have believed and obeyed the gospel. We also need to believe and obey the Great Commission urgently so that we can find those folks that we know who need the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you need the blood of Jesus Christ this morning? Have you responded in obedience to that wonderful, saving, gospel, good news message? Have you responded to it? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you put on Christ in baptism? so that your sins can be washed away. If you haven't done that, please do that this morning. If you need to come for any other reason, we ask that you please come. And together we stand and as we sing.